welcome to The Family Planning Files, a podcast developed by the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In today's podcast, part of our March 2022 Clinician Cafe on providing family planning care to patients with substance use disorders, we'll be discussing the patient perspective with Sharon Hesseltine. Sharon is the president and CEO of Intentional Beginnings Consulting and Training, a small nonprofit with the mission of strengthening organizations and individuals serving those who experience substance use disorders and trauma. Sharon has over three decades of experience working in women's health and substance use disorders and she herself is in long-term recovery from substance use disorder. Welcome to the podcast, Sharon. We're so excited to have you here today. Thanks so much, Catherine. I've been really looking forward to this opportunity just to share with folks who work in the family planning arena. To get us started, can you give us a little bit of your background and story with substance use disorder? Yeah, I'd be more than happy to do that. So, and one of the things I have in my introduction that I often ponder how, if it makes me more unusual in this area is just over 30 years of experience working in public health, which even though that's my professional experience, it still becomes a part of my story and very much a part of who I am. But I have been in recovery from a substance use disorder since early February of 2004. And so oftentimes I'll say I am a woman in long-term recovery and And for me, what that means is I haven't misused substances for the last 18 years. So it's been an amazing journey. And it was quite a journey getting to that point. My entry into recovery was via treatment for substance use disorder, which was, and it was a voluntary decision. As part of your story, have you sought family planning care or sexual and reproductive health care and the sort of impact that that had with substance use disorder and recovery in your life? It's interesting, right? Leading up to this, I was thinking quite a bit and doing a lot of reflecting around women's health care and family planning and my own experiences trying to sort out where my experience is really common to other people and where it might be unique. And one of the things that I really realized is that I'll tell you what, I did not take care of myself in so many different kinds of ways in my active addiction and didn't take prescribed medication, all kinds of things. But the one thing I did make sure of that I was very conscientious of was reproductive health care. And I think from working in public health and working in maternal and child health, I know that there was a part of me that was like, you cannot get pregnant because if you get pregnant, you'll have to stop using drugs. And this is part of my culture, I think, of working in public health. But I actively continued to seek reproductive health care to make sure that I would maintain a prescription for contraception and took oral contraceptives. And it was the one medication I never missed, even in the very worst and most progressed end of my substance use. And that may be unusual. We know that among folks who have a substance use disorder, roughly 95% of women who become pregnant have a substance use disorder that was not planned. That doesn't always tell us about what percentage of folks make sure they don't have an unplanned pregnancy, but that was something really important to me. So it sounds like even though you were living with substance use disorder, you did make sure that you were able to obtain those contraceptive services, which of course requires going into the clinic regularly for an exam. While you were in the clinic, what, in your opinion, could healthcare providers done to address your substance use, if anything, if it was revealed to them? 
I thought about obviously all of this a lot. I work in this field and this is my own personal lived experience, but I will share with you, you know, a situation that happened in the last few years of my substance use disorder. I cannot specifically you know, remember, it was probably within the last three years prior to going to treatment. And I was going into the doctor for a well woman or reproductive health exam. And it was a late afternoon exam appointment, and I was determined that I wasn't going to miss it. That whole day, though, I had been using cocaine and frequently throughout the day. And when I went into that appointment, my blood pressure was like 280 over 110. And now this was within my primary care provider's clinic office and my primary care provider's electronic health record. And so anybody caring for me could have easily seen in my electronic health record that my blood pressure was never high. I did I did not have hypertension and it was extremely high that day. And I am confident that anybody who looked at me would have seen that I had dilated pupils. If they had looked at my nose, I'm sure they would have seen residue from cocaine. I had physical signs and symptoms of being under the influence of a stimulant and no one said anything. There was absolutely nothing said. I always ask, well, what was my blood pressure? And when they told me that, I thought to myself, oh, wow, this is why people die of heart attacks when they're using stimulants because of what happens to their blood pressure. But nothing was ever said to me. In the years since then, one of the things that I really believe is that part of the reason no one said anything is because they knew I was under the influence because I don't have any other really good explanation for why a medical provider would not say anything about a blood pressure that looked like that. I think it is a really good illustration of just how profoundly hesitant Oftentimes, uh, medical providers may be around asking or bringing up a substance use disorder. So I think it, you know, it's just, it's a really good example. Stigma may be a part of that, but I think sometimes the discomfort of not knowing what to say or not knowing what to do stands in the way. But if I think about it within the broader context of medical care and substance use disorder being a disease, it also says that maybe it's acceptable. I'm not sure if that's really the right term to not explore a medical disease disease that is progressive, that is potentially fatal, and that a patient is presenting with in your office. I think sometimes we're not sure what to say, how to have those conversations, how to approach those. There's very little training. And sometimes we may have a lot of preconceived ideas about what someone with a substance use disorder looks like. We talked a little bit about those physical health issues that you experienced from substance use. You had, you know, that really high blood pressure. And there is also that stigma, but providers do come in with their own ideas, attitudes, biases, and discomforts around patients with substance use disorder. Is this something you've commonly seen both in your personal and professional experience? And what are ways providers can address these sort of not physical barriers, but almost mental barriers in providing that care and working to address that substance use with their patients? I think one of the most important things that providers can do is really seek out the training that would help support being able to address this. I wholeheartedly believe that we really should be screening for substance use disorder across 
many kinds of medical services. I do a lot of work with pregnant and parenting individuals who struggle with substance use disorder. The ACOG uh, recommends that there be universal screening for substance use disorder at entry to prenatal care and at every single trimester, yet that doesn't typically happen. And there is training available to be able not just to do those screenings, but to help frame the conversation with folks around their substance use. One of the, I think, best resources online is through the University of Missouri at Kansas City and the Screening Brief Intervention Referral for Treatment Training, which I think is about a three and a half hour training. So you know, learning how do you have the conversations and how do you approach this? Because the other piece, and I think about this in my own experience, I went through a training to be a trainer for SBIRT or Screening Brief Intervention Referral Treatment a number of years ago. And one of the things that I realized, I, I've always wondered in this visit that I you know, shared with you and with our listeners, one of the things I've always wondered about is how might things have looked different if, if someone had had a conversation conversation with me at that point in time, if there'd been, and in a non-judgmental way, right, about, you know, what does my use of substances look like? What would be considered to be risky use? Oftentimes, it's easier to get comfortable with these conversations if we think of risky use of alcohol. The illegal nature of a lot of drugs can make that more uncomfortable for the provider and probably for the patient as well which doesn't mean we don't address it, but alcohol is a great place to start. I think we think about that risky use. What we know about substance use disorder is that this is a disease that is uh, mild, moderate, or severe. And we really don't do anything to try and help to identify folks at that mild or moderate stage. We kind of wait until folks are like pretty well self-destructing. It's almost like if you were going to treat cancer and only do it when it got to stage four and then blame the patient when they didn't get well. We know if we treat people earlier, then they're able, we have much better outcomes with folks. And it really is only at that severe stage where people lose the ability to choose. Addiction has very specific changes in the brain that make it really difficult at that severe stage to just choose to not use substances. But at the other stages, the power of choice is there. So I've wondered so many times about someone had the conversation with me way earlier about my use, where it could end up, what my risk factors were, um, when I still had the power of choice. You know, sometimes I think about, well, my life would have looked different, but the person whose life I think about the most is my daughter, who was 13 when I went to treatment, and who is 32 now. And I think about, wow, had this been identified when I still had the power of choice, how would her life look different? And what are some of the situations and the difficulties that she would have been able to avoid? To open it up a little bit more, you mentioned when you were receiving this reproductive health care, your main concern was don't get pregnant. Were there other particular concerns about your sexual reproductive health that you had that were kind of related to your SUD? Or have you seen other concerns when you've done this work professionally among patients with SUD? And what are these issues that clinicians can be alert to? You know, I think yeah, the other concerns are going to come down, also come around sexually transmitted diseases, right? And making sure that you're screened and tested for potential sexually transmitted diseases. When you're actively under the influence, I think many people aren't making great decisions about 
safe sex practices. I know that I certainly wasn't, and it's not that I wasn't trained in it because I ran our adolescent health division in the health department I worked for. I mean, we did all of the family life education for our junior highs and high schools through all of our counties. I had training as an AIDS educator or HIV educator, but we started that way before we were using the term HIV. So I'd had all of that education. It didn't, especially the more progressive my addiction got, it had less and less influence over my practices. So I think that, you know, worrying about sexually transmitted diseases and being tested for those and knowing that I was being tested for those was helpful. So then I guess, you know, for a week or two after that, I could go, okay, good, I'm clear. I haven't picked up anything. I've been lucky. So we briefly talked about stigma and how that might keep some people from accessing services. What are ways, in your opinion, as a patient who has lived with substance use disorder, that providers and clinicians can ensure that their services are accessible and sensitive to patients who either have an active substance use disorder or are in recovery? So I'll look at both of those. Let's think about active substance use disorder first. We talked about expert training, and I think that that is really quality. The other thing I would always remind providers of is that when you first start having those conversations, it's not going to feel comfortable. So if anybody, if we're waiting till we feel comfortable we're deciding never to have those conversations. I think the only way they get more comfortable is by having them. It's a skill. And just like any other school anybody's learned, we get comfortable with practice. And that's certainly the same with, you know, we look at healthcare staff with all of the skills they've learned. There's no doubt when they first did those things, it didn't feel comfortable, but we practice and we get better. So I think that is an important piece of it. And the other piece are things about learning about language. What's the appropriate language to use? What's some of the language that's not stigmatizing? And I really think there's a tremendous value in really learning about substance use disorder as a disease and understanding how this disease impacts the neurobiology in the brain. My experience has been that a tremendous amount of stigma really stems from the underlying belief that folks are choosing to live in a particular way or choosing to be in addiction. And if they just cared about themselves enough or cared about their children enough or any other thing that we might think of. I think sometimes probably with the arena I work, we think if they love their children enough, they would just stop. And again, if that substance use disorder is severe, the neurobiology, the, the way that the brain has been altered explains all of the behavior that we see. So when we see folks in active addiction, the behavior in active addiction is highly visible. I mean, folks may have car accidents. If you have someone in your family that's had a substance use disorder, then you may have been stolen from, you were more than likely lied to, because we have a brain that has come to believe substances are necessary for survival. So that drives a lot of behavior that's really difficult. And it's difficult to see, particularly in somebody that you care about, because someone in active addiction oftentimes will say is not really the same person and certainly not living by even their own personal values and morals. A lot of that gets discarded over time when someone is in active addiction. So when we you know, think about, well, how do we reduce stigma, we reduce stigma by understanding this disease and understanding how this disease works. I can remember many years ago, there used to be a lot of stigma around cancer and we don't have that anymore. And I think part of that is because we have screening for everybody and we have a much better 
understanding of how that disease works. And we see it as oftentimes a no-fault type of disease where substance use disorder is seen a lot differently. Now, I think when folks are in recovery, certainly education is really important. I've had all kinds of interesting things happen as a person in recovery to the point where sometimes I'm not sure that I want to indicate it on my medical record when I see a provider for the first time, because sometimes it compromises the care that I would receive. And I'll just, I mean, I can give you a quick example of that. It's not so much in the women's health realm, but I've had two total knee replacements in recovery. And I lived in Minnesota when I had one, and then the second one I had after I'd moved. And the first one, I was very open with my my orthopedic surgeon around my history as being in recovery. And as a result of that, some of the choices he wanted to make regarding pain management following that knee replacement were not really great choices. The belief was that if I under-medicate you, I'm being safer. And the reality is, is that actually if you under-medicate pain, and especially with, we're talking a procedure with significant post-op pain, it's actually more dangerous. When I had the second one, I didn't tell my orthopedic surgeon I had a history of a substance use disorder because I didn't have to want to turn around and then try to advocate for why pain should be managed in the same way it would be managed with somebody else. So I think understanding this disease, understanding its implications for the arena that you're working within end up being really important. I would say for women's health providers, and certainly if pregnancy testing is within, you know, this part of the services that you're providing, then knowing how to do those screenings and knowing how to have non-judgmental conversations is critically, critically important. Because when someone finds out they're pregnant, when they have a substance use disorder, well, if they end up connected with the right person at the right time, it's an opportunity and that, that window can slam shut pretty quickly. You mentioned when you went to your physician, you were thinking, what if they had said something you know, earlier about my use? How would have that changed my life? What can clinicians and clinic staff do when they see a patient who presents with that risky category, but it's still subclinical in order to possibly address that substance use disorder? I always go back to, and I know I said, you know, a number of times about screening using an evidence-based interview tool. So one of the things I didn't say earlier on when I use the word screening, I'm talking about an interview-based screening, not toxicology testing. So those are really different kinds of things. And so we think about universal screening that is using an evidence-based interview tool or screening instrument that is reliable and valid. The course with UMKC on SBIRT can provide a lot of different examples of tools and training and ways of administering those tools and then the conversations that you might have after that. So, you know, we can do some things about even just talking about, for example, what risky use of alcohol looks like. Again, I think alcohol can be a really nice introduction to the conversation. There's really some very um, specific guidelines as far as what is considered risky use of alcohol. And sometimes I don't always remember like right off of the top of my head, but for women, the number of drinks per week week. I always, I don't know why I remember men because that number 14 is what stands in my mind. And I know that is for men under the age of 65 is 14 drinks in a week. And then there's a specific amount of drinks in like one sitting. And we have the same things for women. It's pretty easy to find online. And so having a conversation again around that, this is what risky use looks like. Lots of people have found that when they find themselves consuming 
alcohol in greater amounts than this, that they may be putting themselves at risk for developing a substance use disorder. People who have a substance use disorder in their family medical history may be at greater risk for developing one themselves. People who have a co-occurring mental health diagnosis or people who've had trauma or a number of adverse childhood experiences early in their life are also at risk. So for particularly at for folks who have some vulnerabilities, then continuing to use at or above those amounts puts them at risk for kind of getting into that phase of time where they lose the ability to choose how much that they're using. And it is a progressive disease. And for folks that would want to learn more or to get some assistance or support around that, having ways that we can get folks connected with support. I've seen more recently, and I think it's a great trend, this what we call sober curious movement, tons of stuff online. If you Google sober curious, there's so many things there. We had dry January, you know, an encouragement for folks not to use alcohol during the month of January. I think it's probably in the last two years that I have had actually friends who are not in recovery, who aren't necessarily folks who aren't people who have a substance use disorder. But I've seen a lot of people choose to try not using alcohol or other substances for 30 days and see how they feel and then feel so much better that they just are like, yeah, I'm, I'm just not doing that anymore. I think when we, we can come from that perspective in a way that maybe helps us get more comfortable in having some of those conversations and gets people thinking, maybe even putting together a handout with some web resources for folks that might be interested in looking at how they could cut back their use of substances, why they still have the ability to choose to do so. On the other end of that spectrum, there are also patients who are in recovery, like yourself. You mentioned your experience with your first knee replacement and how that doctor wasn't the most supportive of you as a patient who has been in recovery. What are some ways our family planning clinician listeners can support patients who are either new to recovery or in long-term recovery and help them stay on that path? I think asking about it. I, right? I know that you've been in recovery. That's such a great choice. How are things going? Do you have the support and the resources that you need? Have you been able to connect and build friendships and relationships with other people who are also in recovery? Building connection with other people in recovery is huge in supporting someone's recovery. And then I think even for people in recovery, when you get to know people just a little bit about what they do for a living, are they doing something, you know, if they found what their passion is or what their purpose is, some of their, you know, most favorite things that are important in their life. My primary care doctor, I want to say in the Southern way of saying, bless his heart. Anytime I have my annual visit with him, he goes, well, so you still clean? And I'm like, yep, I'm good. And I do so much training around stigma. Like I know that that's kind of stigmatizing language. He doesn't intend it to be like his heart's in the right place. And the fact that he even asks about it, I think is phenomenal. People that I trained, some peer support in Kentucky that I trained had said, yeah, the next time he does that, you need to educate him about non-stigmatizing language and give him an idea of some other questions he might ask. But he is to date still the only medical provider I've ever had who even asks about it. Again, this is something you very briefly brought up, but I think it's especially important for family planning clinicians as the vast majority of their patients are female. And we know that trauma and substance use disorders in women are very much correlated. What are some ways you feel clinicians can be mindful of this connection and the fact that their patients, both male 
and female who have substance use disorders also may have trauma that contributes to that. We know that at least among women with a substance use disorder, a very high percentage have some type of history of trauma. I don't know data that would tell me concretely related to sexual trauma. But for someone who, again, has a substance use disorder, severe the lifestyle that they're leading, and I think predominantly women, but certainly not exclusively by any stretch, really opens them up to the possibility of sexual trauma and to, honestly, I don't know where this falls within trauma, but there is a lot of trading of sex for drugs, which is not so much trauma that is perpetrated, Mm -hmm. but I think that the end result for a person and how that leaves them feeling about themselves is really traumatic. Going through treatment and certainly being around many, many women in recovery and in treatment, the number of women who trade sex for drugs is incredibly, incredibly high. And it's really damaging to a person's sense of self and a person's self-esteem. The way that it leaves people feeling also helps perpetuate the severity of the disease because what I've oftentimes said around substance use and compromising your own value system and your morals and what you think makes a person a good person, that leads to more use because of the shame or the self-hatred that comes with that. And it can almost become like a snowball rolling down a hill. So I think for providers, and we say this in substance use disorder treatment regularly, is if we really approach everybody sensitively and through a trauma lens, we aren't going to be making mistakes in how we serve folks. That trauma-informed care is good quality, sensitive, responsive care for everybody. It could also lead to people, though, I think being really uncomfortable in the women's health exam. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, but of course, we've only just tapped the surface of substance use disorder. So what are some resources that you feel are good for clinicians who want to learn more about substance use disorder and sexual and reproductive health from the patient perspective? Or what are some resources that you would recommend that clinicians refer their patients to if they have questions? One of the websites that I really love is the Recovery Research Institute. And so whether you are a clinician or whether you are a patient, it's not as much specific to sexual health, but as far as being able to access research in a very digestible way, they do a lot of research where they have the synopsis of the research and they really present it in a way that it's easily digestible. The other thing that's on that website is what's called the addictionary. And so you can basically look up any word. It's going to tell you whether there's stigma associated with that word. And then there's a lot of links within that. So, you know, when we talk about going down the rabbit hole on the internet, if you're really wanting to learn a lot around addiction, this is a great place to start. And what I also really like about it is you can be comfortable that what you're reading is accurate information. I mean, there's a lot of places we can go where things aren't accurate. What I would tell anybody who's trying to do any kind of research online around addiction, 
is don't believe anything you read on any treatment provider's website. A lot of times I find if I'm trying to find something related to addiction, I have got to kind of sort through all the treatment providers that come up in a Google search. So, but the Recovery Research Institute is a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. I always recommend start with understanding the disease of addiction and how it impacts the brain, because the more that you understand, then the easier it is to to apply that understanding to the work that you already know how to do. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Uh, Of course, all good things must end. But before we go, what would be your final takeaway message to our listeners going forward as they return to their clinical practices? I feel like I've talked about educating yourself a lot, but also remember that a person with a substance use disorder doesn't always look like what you think they will. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sharon, and for sharing your time, your expertise, and of course, sharing your story, which can be very hard, but I'm sure all of our listeners will appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me, Catherine. I really, and everybody who's listening, thank you so much for the work that you all do. For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for The Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers established and funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees and service sites and other family planning providers. This podcast is supported by DHHS grant number 1-FPTPA-006031-01-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS, OASH, and or OPA for the opinions or products described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of the Family Planning Files.